Fantastic. Thank you. Good morning. Uh, my name's Charlie. I'm one of the ministers here. And thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you, Rob, for leading our service so well so far. And for Ellie, Jenny and Christy. Um, Christy, I'm sorry I cut your reading slightly short. We ended up with a lot in the service this morning, so I, I just trimmed it down. So we're continuing our sermon series looking at the life of Paul, and we've come to Acts 15. And I came across a story this week about a married couple. They'd been married for nearly 50 years. And that whole time, the wife had kept a a shoebox of treasures on top of a wardrobe. And and her husband knew that this was her, her special box and he was never to look in it. Well, eventually the time came and she needed additional help. And she went to live in a home. And and taken with curiosity, the husband went and got the shoebox down and looked inside it. And inside the box, he found two small crocheted dolls and £95,000 in cash. Well, anyway, he went to visit his wife that evening and he said to her, I've just been wondering, I I found these two crocheted dolls in the shoebox and wondered why they were there. And she said, oh... Well, I received a piece of advice when we first got married some 50 years ago, and it was this. Whenever I got angry with you, I was to crochet a doll. Well, the man's heart filled with warmth warmth and love for his wife, because in their whole 50 years of married life, she'd only been angry with him twice, because there were just two dolls. Then he asked her, so what was the, what's the 95,000 pounds there for? He said, oh, that's the money I made selling all the dolls. (laughs) Ah, sorry. So uh, you may remember um, last year, we as a church celebrated our 250th anniversary. Um, And John Stanger was the founder of Bessels Green Baptist Church, and his name came up quite a lot last year. And I was looking back in some of the records last year, and I came across this, the minute book from um, Bessels Green Chapel, Seven Oaks. Now, actually, that is now the Unitarian Church, the meeting house down the road. And it was the original church. And this is a minute from 1769. Uh, Mr. John Stanger, whom we have found not answerable to our good expectations and hope of him, but on the contrary... He, having warmly insisted upon principles and doctrines inconsistent with the faith and doctrines of this church, he, the said John Stanger, having had admonition to no good effect, and so it goes on, we do therefore agree and conclude that the said John Stanger is contumacious, apparently that means argumentative, uh, contumacious, and a disorderly person, one that causes division and offences among us, and therefore we do exclude him from being a minister or member of this congregation and of any further privileges of dwelling in this house. Controversies in the church are not new, folks. In fact, Bessels Green Baptist Church was born out of a split between uh, two factions within this church. John Stanger was the assistant minister at the church in the t- at the time. And uh, I'm not quite sure of the details, but he left, moved down the road and set up Bessels Green Baptist Church. Well, in our story in the life of Paul, there is a disagreement or a discussion brewing in the early church. And the passage tells us it caused considerable argument and it's this what to do with gentile believers 
You see, for the Jews at the time, they believed that they weren't starting a new religion. This was the fulfillment of Judaism. They were still faithful Jews. They still met and worshipped in the synagogue. Um, so the question was, when these Gentiles began to come to faith, to become Christians, did they need to convert to Judaism first? And as Andy spoke to us last week, you know, the question was really, did they need to be circumcised? Did the men need to be circumcised in order to become Jews before they could become Christians? And this was a hot topic, a discussion in the early church. So the church decided to call a council. And the leaders of the church in Antioch and the leaders of the church in Jerusalem got together in Jerusalem to thrash it out and decide what they should do. And as Christy read to us so well earlier, we hear that Paul, when they arrived in Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church, the apostles and the elders. And they, that's Paul and Barnabas, told them all the things that God had done with them. It seems that it started with Paul and Barnabas telling of their experience, their experience tra travelling through Cyprus and through, the, the, through um, Galatia, or what would be southern Turkey today, and how Gentiles had come to faith, how God had gifted them with the Holy Spirit, and, and, and how delighted they were at the way the church was spreading. So they start by telling of their experience. It's Peter who speaks next from the tradition. From our early days together, he says, God shows that, we should be, that it should be from my mouth that the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So Paul has spoken of his experience. Peter is talking of the tradition. And then it is James who brings in scripture, who brings in the Bible, quoting from Amos 9. I will build the ruins again and set them straight so that the rest of the human race may seek the Lord and all the nations upon whom my name has been called. So at this council in Jerusalem, we see three factors being brought into consideration. We see the experience of the first Christians. We hear the experience of the tradition of the church. And we hear the influence of scripture. And I want to suggest to you this morning that whenever we have to consider something that's tricky theologically, whenever we have to discuss something or debate it together, it's important that we acknowledge all three of these areas. You know, as good Protestants, we like to say sola scriptura, it's the Bible alone, that's our only authority. And the Bible is our authority. But we also have to recognise it that when we come to read the Bible, we do so in a tradition. I grew up in a Baptist church. I was taught how to read the, read the Bible by people in Charlton King's Baptist Church. And I have a particular perspective that's part of my tradition. Perhaps you have others. I know some that are part of our congregation now grew up Anglicans. Some grew up Catholics. Some grew up within the Dutch Reformed Church in South Africa and others. We all approach scripture through a tradition and an understanding that shapes it. And then also our experiences. It might be our cultural experiences of being British, German, South African. It might be the experiences of our family, of ourselves, of our siblings, of our parents. So actually, when we come to discuss a theological topic, all of these come into play. And it's just important that we're honest about them, that we recognise their influence and that we're kind to other people, that we hear people who have different experiences of faith, different to ours, and we give them space 
and room to share of their experience of God. I've heard it described as being like a tricycle, three wheels, the experience, scripture and tradition. And we need all three wheels working well in order to make good godly decisions. We will move forward on our tricycle of faith only with three good wheels, tradition, scripture and experience. If we leave off any of these three wheels, our interpretations of scripture and reality will be unstable and biased. So this is what the church does. In Acts 15 in Jerusalem, they weigh up scripture, experience and tradition. And they finally decide that we should not cause extra difficulties for those of the Gentiles who have turned to God. We're not going to expect them to be circumcised. Rather, we believe that it is by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that we shall be saved, just like them. And I can hear Paul breathing a sigh of relief. Yes, we got there. Gentiles can become part of the faith without putting this extra expectation on them. And I imagine Paul is saying, actually, that's great news because, you know, really it's only men that could be circumcised. But now the door is thrown open to slave and free and to male and female alike, that we can all become part of this one fellowship saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, they conclude to send a letter and they're going to write to the other churches in Galatia and in um, Cyprus and tell them of the news. And that's what they do. They send this letter on. And continuing with our story, Paul and Barnabas decide that time has come for them to go back and visit these fledgling churches that they've set up. And Barnabas suggests that he should take John Mark with them. You'll read the rest of this story if you read through Acts. But actually, Paul doesn't want to take John Mark. If you remember from a few weeks ago when we got to when they were heading to Pisidian Antioch, John Mark quiched it. He gave up on them. He went back to Jerusalem because he was too afraid. They're heading into Gentile territory and he proved to be unreliable. Well, it appears Barnabas wants to give him a second chance. Barnabas wants to take him on this next trip with them. But Paul is adamant that he mustn't, that he should not come. And they have a huge row. Um, one of the translations I looked said that Paul had a paroxysm of anger. Well, I had to look that word up. Apparently it means a violent outburst. And they had a proper row and a proper falling out. And Paul and Barnabas, who've been together on all these journeys, go their separate ways. I do wonder when we read some of Paul's later letters, later on in his ministry, where he talks about using language violently and outbursts, actually, and the importance of not, of controlling your temper. I do wonder if he looks back on this occasion with regret and wonders actually if in this moment he might have made a mistake and spoken out of turn. But that's just my surmising. So Barnabas took Mark and sailed off for Cyprus. And Paul chose Silas to be his companion and went off and they went on through Syria, Cilicia, strengthening the churches. And now we're into what gets called Paul's second missionary journey. And I'll blow it up big on the screen here because you can see they go back to Antioch, onto Tarsus where Paul is from, onto Derbe and then to Lystra. Now it's worth pausing when we get to Lystra, this town here, because Lystra is where Paul picks up Timothy. 
And some of you will have heard of Timothy in the story of Paul. He was a, a young man, a disciple, somebody that Paul took under his wing and mentored, who then went on to travel with them on the rest of this journey. He actually is the recipient of the letters that we have in the New Testament, 1 and 2 Timothy. Apparently he was martyred at the age of 80 in 97 AD for trying to preach the gospel during a procession to the goddess Dionysius. Anyway, we've picked up Timothy and now Paul, Silas and Timothy travel on Iconium, Pisidian Antioch and then on to Troas. And finally, it's in Troas where Paul receives a vision from a man from Macedonia saying, come over and preach the gospel to us. And that's where we leave our story of Paul for today. He's on the verge of leaving Asia and heading into Europe, which is culturally a very different place, still under Roman occupation, but very different. He's about to cross the water over to Macedonia. So the Council of Jerusalem, Acts 15. It set up a pattern for what would happen in the church over the years to come. And there are, they become known as the seven ecumenical councils. But in the early life of the church, there were seven times again that the whole church gathered to make decisions on issues of doctrine and theology. You'll be familiar with some of them. 325, the first council of Nicaea. You've heard of the Nicaean Creed, the profession of faith that we read out. That was agreed at that first council. And then there are others. And this format of getting the church together to decide on issues of theology and faith happens until eventually we get to 1054 where the church splits for the first time. It's known as the Great Schism and the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Western Church to become known as the Catholic Church separate. And they begin to split and really from that day onwards we've been splitting with the Reformation of 1517 and so it goes on. More and more branches, more and more different denominations, as Rob alluded to earlier. And there we are, on the tree of denominations, out on one small branch, on one small twig, over to the right are the Baptists. In reality, in terms of the global church, we are quite a small denomination. So why is it that we think we have such a monopoly on all the truth? Why is it that we think we are absolutely right on everything? Because we always seem so certain. I guess what I want to take, take from this morning, I want to challenge us with this morning, is perhaps a little bit of humility. Just to be in hum humble about the way we hold our faith and recognise that we are part of a global church. There are some pretty big trunks in that church. And actually the church is broad enough and wide enough to hold all of us. So actually, rather than asserting our position and being insistent that we hold a monopoly on all the truth and everyone else is wrong, which is a caricature, but sometimes I hear positions that aren't dissimilar to that, we perhaps treat faith with a bit more humility and recognise that actually there may be things we could learn from the Eastern Orthodox tradition, from the Catholic tradition, from the Mennonites about non-violence, from assemblies of God about worshipping in the spirit, from the holiness tradition about leading holy lives. Perhaps we need all of us gathered around the table of God. I want to appeal for what I might call a generous orthodoxy. 
orthodoxy, that which is right, that which is orthodox within the church. And, you know, we're tempted to think that orthodoxy is this narrow band down the middle and that actually there's, there's a sea of heresy all around it. And orthodoxy is just this narrow strip. Which actually I want to argue that actually orthodox Christianity is quite broad and there is room for different experience. There is room for different interpretation. There is room for different understandings and there is room for us to learn from one another and okay, yes, there are some ideas on the edges that are out there that might get branded as heresy. But actually, the majority of the church, there is space for us all and we have a lot to learn because it's not our ideas, our intellectual thoughts, our theological positions that define us as Christians. It is rather we believe that it is by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that we shall be saved, just like them. It's Jesus that unites us. It's, it's what he has done and achieved on the cross, and it is the, his grace by which we are saved. And that is our one badge of ownership in the king. Not our intellectual ideas, not our best the, getting all our correct theological ducks in the row. You know, that might be an interesting conversation and, and worth having and worth wrestling over. But at the end of the day, what unites us in Christians, as Christians is what Jesus has done. And that was the conclusion of the first church council in Acts 15 in Jerusalem all those years ago. And it's my assertion to you today that that is what unites us. And as for the other stuff, well, let's, let's wrestle with it. Let's debate it, but let's not let it divide us. Let's not let it separate us, but let's learn from, learn from one another, recognising that this is our badge of ownership. Amen. 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 Let's pray together. Father God, we are part of a diverse worldwide church, as we've heard today with friends worshipping from wet, windy Welsh Wales and from South Africa. And we have friends watching in Germany and all sorts of other places at the moment. We recognise we are part of a global church, that we come part of a church, part of different denominations, that we come from different traditions, from different experiences, from different cultures. Thank you for the richness that that brings to our experience of worship and our experience of you. Help us always to find time to listen to the experiences of others, to hear their testimony of how God has shaped them and their lives. And Lord, that we would be richer for the diversity that you've put into our body. But Lord, I thank you that what unites us at the end of the day aren't those things, aren't our national identities, but they are the fact that of what you have done, Jesus, on the cross, your death, your resurrection for us. Lord, we, we thank you that that is our badge of membership, our badge of ownership. That is what unites us together as your church all over the world. In Jesus' name. Amen.